0: and others, and I'll say more about that later, but my time is more pressing at this hour. Let me say just a word about uh, my voice, because I may sputter and stammer around. About three days ago, I couldn't speak hardly at all. I had drainage in the back of my throat, been working on it, and I don't know what's going to happen as I project, and you'll be able to see along with me, but if I have to do quite a bit of struggling with my voice, I hope you will be indulgent. At this hour, we are talking about resisting apostasy. In February of 1982, I was on the uh, National uh, One Nation Under God television program with Furman Curley. Furman Curley was then the editor of The Gospel Advocate. He and I got to talking about some signs of apostasy in our brotherhood. We were both very concerned. And he asked me to edit a special edition of A Gospel Advocate, which I did, on resisting apostasy. That was in the year, again, 1982, in February of 1982. I got together ten leaders in the church all over the Brotherhood. Three of them were former presidents of Christian universities of ours. And we wrote on that, various aspects of it. And now things have gotten much worse than they were then. So in 2007, I published the book that was referred to just a moment ago by Doug, about a 300-page book called Protecting Our Blind Side. It deals with contemporary hot issues in Churches of Christ like instrumental music, marriage, divorce, remarriage, grace, grace without obedience is the way I would put it, and we'll talk about that, even if baptism is essential or not, because some among us are denying that. In the preface of the book, I quoted a Nashville elder by the name of John Parker. He had written an article called Protecting Our Blindside," And Parker had quoted from an author by the name of Michael Lewis. The book that he wrote was about football, of course, The Blindside: Evolution of a Game. That was in 2006. He published it. And in that, he pointed out that the highly paid, generally the most highly paid court, uh, uh, A football player in the NFL will be the quarterback, like Peyton Manning. But the second most highly paid is the left tackle, offensive tackle, who protects the blind side of that quarterback. By the way, just recently, Peyton hasn't had the best protection. But at any rate, uh, that's the idea. I pointed out, using that, I pointed out that Christians need to protect their spiritual blind side. You know, we expect opposition from others that teach false doctrine. We expect that from atheists. We expect it from Protestants who teach false doctrine and some Catholics. But when brethren from within the Lord's church teach false false concepts, it is different. Because our guard is down and it's much more dangerous. It slips up on our blind side. You know, Paul warned us about that. In fact, to the Ephesian elders, he said, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples to themselves. Acts the twentieth chapter, verses 29 and following. Now we know that Satan is the one who ultimately deceives the nations, Revelation 20 and verse 3, including churches and individuals. And sometimes he uses people that call themselves teachers even within the Lord's church to pull people away from what is really his truth. No wonder then John said in 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out in the world. Sometimes those false prophets arise from among our own selves as we just saw and they take us off guard. And and as a result, many people are led astray. That has happened in churches of Christ in the last three or four decades. The sources of false teaching are sometimes preachers, sometimes elders. Maybe if they don't teach it themselves, they hold up for preachers who do. Sometimes college professors. And those who do that and lead us astray esteem the philosophies of men more than the oracles of God. Now, how does the Holy Spirit describe such a a situation? In the symbolic language of the Revelation letter, the author speaks of seven golden lampstands. You will find that in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Each congregation, according to this imagery, is a freestanding lampstand with an earthenware lamp glowing or burning on top of it. Christ, according to the imagery used there, regularly walks among his own churches in the middle of them, if you will look at Revelation 1 and verse 13. And as long as they obey him, their light burns brightly. But when they or we begin to ignore his word, then our lampstand is in danger of removal. Listen to what Jesus says to the Ephesus church. Repent and do deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, Revelation 2 and verse 5. Brother J.W. Roberts, who was an esteemed teacher of Greek at Abilene Christian back in different days with Abilene, said this about this passage, They will cease to be regarded by Christ as a true church of his when he removes them. How sad to be removed from Christ's lists of churches that are approved and among whom he walks. Some are in that situation today, and others, by the way, are on the endangered list. Let's note, as we get into the body of our lesson at this hour, the Pergamum apostasy. If you want to turn in your text, you will find it in Revelation 2, verses 12 and following. The city of Pergamum was in what we would call Asia Minor, located north of Smyrna, on a, in a state called Mysia. It was on the west tip of what we would call Turkey today, or Asia Minor. Probably the official center of the imperial cult. Also, it was thus said to be, if you look in Revelation 2 and verse 13, Satan's throne was there. We don't know for sure what that refers to, but we do know there was an altar of Zeus, a pagan god. that was 120 feet long, an altar on which you did sacrifices, 120 feet long, 112 feet wide, and 20 feet high. Now the church there was probably founded by Paul and his co-workers. In fact, if you look at Acts the 19th chapter verses 8 and following, you will find that for the space of 2 years Paul reached out, he was teaching in the school of Tyrannus, and they reached out from Ephesus and many in Asia listened to what is said in the 10th verse. This took place for 2 years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Asia at that time was the whole tip of what we would call Turkey. Now, Pergamum was only about 150 miles north of Ephesus, probably established originally as a result of the outreach from Ephesus that Paul was involved in. And in its early years, it evidently did well. It was faithful. For in about 95 AD, Christ reveals to the angel of the church at Pergamum, You held fast my name, verse 13, He says, he goes on to say, you didn't deny my faith even in the time when one of their members who was named Antipas was killed among you, verse 13. Actually, the terminology that's used there means a violent death, and the original term that's used means he was one of the first martyrs. In fact, he was killed, and that indicates, as we said, a violent death. Despite this brother's death, the others in the church there did not deny the Lord's faith, Verse 13, you will find, they did not deny his body of teachings. They stayed with it. And so with them, God was pleased because they held up even when one of their own members was killed. But later we come to, as Paul Harvey would have said, the rest of the story. That's the, Merga, the Pergamum apostasy. Look at verse 14. But now things have changed, you see. But I have a few things against you. He's going to say you've gone into apostasy. What is an apostasy anyway? Well, it's a desertion of one's faith and principles, according to Funken Wagnall's dictionary. It's a defection from the true religion, says Thayer, as he defines the term in his Greek lexicon. When John writes, some there, look at verse 14, held to the teachings of Balaam, things have changed. They're no longer a solid church. In fact, those teachings of Balaam included to eat things sacrificed to idols. Evidently, they were going into the idols' temples, as Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 12, and eating those foods sacrificed to idols. And it also included, their apostasy included, look at verse 14, acts of immorality. That is, sexual immorality. Frequently, that kind of thing was connected with pagan temples like the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. Notice now, please, there in verse 14, that only some held these teachings and the practices of Balaam. Yet all members are held accountable because the others tolerate it. I have something against, he says, look at verse 14, chapter 2, 14. I have something against the whole congregation, is what he's talking about. The whole congregation must repent, if you look at verse 16. If not, look carefully at the latter part of verse 16. Christ will come to you quickly and make war against them with his word, verse 16. Edward McDowell, in his commentary on Revelation, says the church as a whole is held responsible for the presence of these false teachers, page 48. They were to purge themselves of that false teaching. They were to cease tolerating such. Otherwise, Christ would make war against them and punish them How would he punish them? Well, the revelation letter doesn't tell us. We don't know for sure how he would punish them. But I like what Roper says in his comments on this particular passage. Brother Roper has written a commentary on it. He said, "It is as if Jesus said, "I'm about to drop a bomb on the false teachers, and if they're still in your midst when I do so, then you'll be destroyed with them." One thing we know. They were about to have their lampstand removed from the list of faithful churches that Christ would approve. That's the Pergamum apostasy. Now let's look at our current apostasy. If Christ were to speak directly to churches of Christ in the USA today, what would he say? Well, judging from his word found here in Revelation 2 that we've been dealing with, he would probably commend churches of Christ as he commended the church at Pergamum. First of all, he would say, well, in time past, you've held faithful. You've kept my faith. In the period 1850 to 1906, when there was the developing Christian church apostasy, in that period, some brethren began affirming that the silence of scripture was always permissive. That is, you could do whatever you wanted to do in the work and worship of the church. You could do whatever was not explicitly condemned. Our brethren began taking that position, and the floodgates were partially opened. In the 1850s, 1858 I believe explicitly in Kentucky, one instrument of music was introduced into one church. But even as late as 1868, ten years later, the well-known preacher Ben Franklin estimated that there were only about 50 churches in the brotherhood's 10,000 that were using instrumental music. But then there was a very influential church in St. Louis, the biggest church there, that purchased a building from the Episcopalians, and it had a pipe organ in it. And many of the brethren decided that they wanted to use that pipe organ, and there was a real battle, and finally those in favor of the instrument won out. Ben Franklin tells of a sad situation of going for a congregation, to a congregation in Akron, Ohio in 1868 He had been employed two years earlier to hold a meeting there, and he went to hold a meeting and found out that they had put in the instrument in the meantime. And he tells of how he was anguished as to whether or not to go ahead with the meeting and so forth. In that same period of time, the missionary society for doing mission work rather than doing it through congregations was introduced. And then came fellowship with unbaptized, with Protestants who had not been baptized as if they were already Christians, And then came theological liberalism, that is, denying the inspiration of the scripture, and the floodgates were fully open. But some brethren resisted that apostasy. They fought tooth and nail. Some in that church in St. Louis, they finally lost the battle in that central church in St. Louis, but they resisted it, and they left that church when it put in the instrument. In the Nashville area, David Lipscomb wrote for the Gospel Advocate, was its editor, from 1865 to 1910. During that time, according to one of our uh, brethren who has written on it, M.C. Kerfies, who's written on instrumental music, he says, the Gospel Advocate has stood like a stone wall for a plain thus saith the Lord in matters of religious work. That's quoted by Earl West. To a lesser degree, the fine scholar, J.W. McGarvey, stood against The apostasy. He didn't always stand on the matter of instrumental music. But in 1881, he was doing some lectures. There was a lectureship in Holden, Missouri, and he clashed with a certain Alexander Proctor. And Proctor said, as he insisted that we need to have everything authorized that we're doing, that is, McGarvey insisted on that, Proctor said, You know, I'd rather get to the heart of Christ rather than quoting all the time, book, chapter, and verse as he made fun of getting authorization from the scripture. By the way, how do you get to the heart of Christ without quoting scripture? Does Christ communicate with you personally? Proctor seemed to indicate that he thought he did with him. Now, Christ would have commended us for holding fast back in that period, 1850s to 1906, back then, but undoubtedly, he would go on to list some as he did with Pergamum of the problems he has with us now. The things he has now against us are signs of apostasy in our brotherhood. Let me list several of them for you. In the area of women leadership, a large Tennessee congregation uses women now to lead in prayer in an adult class. Women have been advertised as, as co-teaching mixed adult classes in at least two of our major universities in our brotherhood. Mixed chapel in one of our Christian universities about three years back, there was a woman who lectured on the Sermon on the Mount to a mixed chapel audience at Abilene Christian. Her first name was Katie, and she lectured and is a preacher among Churches of Christ. At least that's what she calls herself. In 2008, in the Civic Auditorium in Nashville, some Churches of Christ, along with some Christian churches and even Disciples of Christ, collaborated in what they called a gospel meeting meeting. And in that gospel meeting, the first speaker, plenary speaker, in the big auditorium was a woman preacher from the Disciples of Christ. And a college president's wife participated in those mixed situations also in that meeting in 2008. Let's move to another area. In the area of fellowshipping Protestants, an Oklahoma congregation published in its bulletin about 10 years ago that it intends to have, quote, fellowship with other non-Church of Christ groups. Still another Church of Christ in that same state picked up the article and ran it and approved it. A preacher of a large Texas church, Church of Christ, when interviewed by the newspapers, said all of this conflict between us and the Baptists is, quote, ridiculous. A major school among us, Christian school, they call themselves, organized a conference on the restoration ideal in which Mennonites and Pentecostals and Latter-day Saints were included, and the program stated that they would have, quote, common worship together on Sunday morning at the Campus Church of Christ. Numerous schools among us, by the way, are now using Protestants regularly to speak about how to preach and how to do this and how to do that without making any distinction between those who have been baptized biblically and those who haven't. In another area, <clears throat> questioning even the essentiality of baptism for remission of sins, one college professor has published a book on rebaptism, and he said it's sufficient to be baptized to obey God. You don't have to be baptized for the remission of sins. And so automatically, if you accept him, many Protestants who have not been baptized biblically become, you would view them as Christians if you hold that position. One well-known brother was interviewed by the Baptist press, and he says, Baptism is for obedience, but not for salvation. What kind of gobbledygook is that? You're speaking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time and going in different directions. In the area of questioning an eternal hell and saying there is no eternal hell, a gospel preacher among us published a book in which he affirms that there is no eternal punishment for the wicked, And he was later featured on that topic in one of our major college lectureships. And now at least four other brethren have followed him in accepting that position that there is no eternal hell. I have a whole chapter in my book on that, by the way. And then worse, another area of our apostasy. Three professors of one of our universities in 2002 published a book called God's Holy Fire. It sounds good if you're not real carefully and, and careful and analytical in reading it. But on page 39, that is, I mean, it has a lot of footnotes. You get the impression these guys are really learned. But if you look carefully on page 39, you will, say they, you will see that they say inerrancy is not a profitable doctrine. You know what that means. Down where the rubber meets the road, that means they are affirming their errors in the Bible. In 2009, several professors of one of our universities published the great big volume that I have in my library, about 1,200 pages, called The Transforming Word. And if you look carefully on page seven, they'll tell you that Moses isn't really the author of the Pentateuch. And several other similar things, for example, about the Isaiah, how Isaiah originated. Inspiration is in the middle of that, you see. And when inspiration is questioned, that all doctrines are up for grabs. I am convinced that the Lord would have several things against some of us today. In the apostasy of the 1850s down through 1906, are you aware of the fact that we lost 85% of our brotherhood? Only 15% stayed true to the word and became Churches of Christ non-instrumental. In fact, in 1906, when the U.S. Census officials recognized the already existing division, they numbered the liberal element of our brotherhood, that is, the Christian church, had over one million members, controlling 35 major institutes of higher learning, including Drake and Butler, which our brethren had started. By the way, Terry attended Butler, and when he attended there for a music degree, he couldn't even tell it was a Christian church, a Christian school, but it had been started by our brethren, So a million went with the Christian Church, and only 159,000 mostly in the South and the Southwest who controlled only seven struggling colleges, 35 left us. Further, most of the 2,649 congregations that remained true to the Lord's word were congregations of less than 100. Do you know where the Christian Church has gone since that division? In the 1960s, the Christian church divided again, and the independent Christian churches swung back toward us some, though keeping instrumental music. But the liberal element, the disciples, accepted all uh, ideas and all doctrines and even renounced the idea of a restoration publicly, said, we don't want to restore anything anymore. It's a foolish idea. In fact, the disciples in 1989, in their biannual General Assembly meeting in Indianapolis, listen to this carefully, they even voted down a resolution that stated that one had to accept Jesus to be a Christian to go to heaven. They said, you don't have to accept Jesus. You can go to heaven without accepting him. And then in 1907, their general minister and president, whose name at that time, I don't know if he's still president, was Michael Hinneman, Dean of the Disciples Lexicon and Seminary. He endorsed the practice of homosexuality and approve the ordaining of gays. Now, what can we do to resist the in-progress apostasy among us? How do you resist that apostasy? Well, in the first place, let me say this. When we talk about resisting, we need to remember the scriptures are explicit about the fact that we need to be alert to what's going on in our brotherhood. When Paul wrote to the Philippian brethren, he said it this way in Philippians 3 and verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Paul was inspired and so he used terms that are stronger than I would use, but he says, beware, be careful, be on the alert. We have so many people today, it seems, sitting in the pews who don't open Bibles hardly at all. That's very dangerous, very, very dangerous. We need to open our Bibles. We need to be reading what's going on in the Brotherhood. We need to be understanding what the approaches of those who would lead us astray are. Well, let me talk about some of them. First of all, we need to beware of those who deny the restoration principle. In about 1995, there was a brother who lectured in West Memphis, and he made fun of the idea of restoring the New Testament church. He called himself a gospel preacher for Churches of Christ. But he said, which church is it we want to restore anyway? That one at Corinth that was all divided up, and that one that some of them didn't believe in the resurrection? You know, it sounds kind of good if you don't really analyze it. But that's a straw man. It's meant to deceive and confuse. No one advocates a particular church like Corinth being our ideal and our model. Rather, the church as described in the inspired New Testament is what is our model. Paul taught, by the way, that there was a pattern. In Romans, the sixth chapter, at verse 17, and we'll deal with this more next time, you became obedient to that form of doctrine. The original term for form is T-U-P-O-S, tupos. Bauer, and Gingrich's Greek lexicon says that that's defined as the pattern of teaching. So obviously, when you left that form and that teaching, you need to restore it. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 9. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things and the God of peace will be with you. But it is obviously implied if you don't practice those things that have come down from us, that's a part of that form of doctrine, that pattern, then God will not be with you. You'll be taken off and removed from that list of Christ-approved churches. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about things like the rule of elders. Elders are to rule in the congregation, not as authoritarian heads, but yes, they have some authority, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. It's not the preacher. And if it gets to where the preacher is ruling in the congregation, we need to go back and look at the pattern again. But let's move on to another area. Beware of those, the so-called new hermeneutic people. New hermeneutic, that sounds impressive, doesn't it? Sometimes they use, false teachers use terms to impress you with how smart they are. In 1989, we had a forum on this topic, Howard Norton and I versus uh, Tom Albright and Leonard Allen at Freed-Hardeman University. We discussed it for six hours about the new hermeneutic. In fact, I've written a tract called the new hermeneutic. What's the definition of hermeneutic anyway? The science of interpreting the scripture is what hermeneutic refers to. And so the old traditional hermeneutic was this. I think it's the biblical hermeneutic. I don't care whether it's old or new. Commands and examples and necessary inferences are those methods by which we access the authority of scripture to authorize what we're doing. We be brethren is a book published by J.D. Thomas, then head of the Bible department at Abilene back when it was conservative. And on page 53 of that book, he wrote, to return to the principles of interpretation of the Restoration Movement, we remember that we have always believed that pattern authority was established by commands or express statements, by necessary inference, and by approved precedents or approved apostolic examples. That's how we access authority of the scripture and know that what we are doing is authorized by the scripture and not just something off the top of our head. But in the so-called new hermeneutic, There was a fellow by the name of Armour, Abilene Lectures, 1988, who gave three different lectures that I've combed over very carefully. And he said, really, the scriptures are not a pattern for us to follow. They are more like love letters. And he said, in love letters, silence is just kind of coincidental, Another gentleman by the name of Fenter, on the OCUSA lectures in 1989, by the way, I'll have to say and commend the brethren there, they, they uh, renounced this statement that he made, but there he taught on that lectureship, silence is preeminently freedom. Basically, whatever is not specifically condemned, you can do, he said. But where does that lead? If you take the position that you can do whatever is not explicitly condemned, then obviously one of the first things that gets in is instrumental music. Do you ever know of any passage anywhere that says thou shalt not use instrumental music? There isn't one. But a lot more things are going to come in that door, too. Where is the passage that says thou shalt not sprinkle infants? There isn't one. You have to let that in too. What about having steak and potatoes on the Lord's table instead of bread and through the and vine? There is no passage that says you can't do that. What about having a woman pope? Do you know of any place in the scripture where it said, Thou shalt not have a woman pope? If you do, tell me. I've missed it. It isn't there. The truth is that some things that are not specifically condemned are condemned by inference. How do you know that you shouldn't sprinkle infants? Well, because they can't believe. And the scriptures say you're to go and preach, and those that believe are to repent and be baptized. And Infants can't repent, and they can't be baptized for remission of their sins. First place, they don't have them. And so by inference, infant baptism is certainly condemned. Also, clearly, some silence is prohibitive. Listen to me carefully. Some silence is prohibited by the specificity of the command. When you get real specific with the command, listen to me carefully now. Here's Hebrews 7 and verse 14. He's talking about the old law, the Hebrews writer is. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. You remember the Lord had said back to the Israelites back then, you are to use the Levites as the priests. And once you said Levites, if he had simply said back in the Old Testament, use any of your men as the priests, but he didn't. He said, use Levi. And that specifically excludes all others without, without having to name them, all of the other tribes. Now, extending that principle, take the Lord's Supper. If he had said, well, use some drink and some food on the Lord's table, you, you could have used uh, whatever you wanted to use, by way of drink, you could have used a mountain dew or whatever. And you could have used steak. But he was specific. He said, "bread and the fruit of the vine." And in worship, the reason you can't sing and be approved by the Lord, sing with an instrument that is, is because if he had said, "Make music," you could have made music with an organ too, but he didn't say that. He was specific. He said, I want you to sing. Somebody says, well, that's awfully complicated. Not really. If I send my 15-year-old son to the grocery store and tell him to get a gallon of vanilla ice cream and he comes back with 10 gallons of all different flavors, then he knows that he's violated without me having to say, "You, you shall not get chocolate, you shall not get all of those others. He knows that. Beware of the new hermeneutic. In the third place, beware of grace without obedience. It's sometimes, by the way, our brethren will now, the left-leaning brethren in our brotherhood will call it redemptive grace. Now, please don't get me wrong. I believe firmly in grace. We are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Yes, I even believe very decidedly in redemptive grace. As long as you define it scripturally. But redemptive grace as taught by a Nashville brother means if you sin in divorcing your faithful wife, he has a series of tapes out saying this, it's never a sin to remarry. You can divorce 16 times and it's never a sin to remarry. That's not redemptive grace that's taught in the scripture. He says you can go ahead and live with your new wife having ditched your old wife for just any old reason. You can go ahead and live with your new wife for, with God's approval. That's redemptive grace. Redemptive grace. That's not the grace the Bible describes in the New Testament particularly. Listen to what kind of grace is taught in the New Testament. Titus 2 and verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. What does grace do? It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Again, according to some, this new grace causes some of us to accept Protestants without biblical baptism. But as Elza Hufford said several years ago, by the way, it was in that Gospel Advocate that we put out in 1992, Elza Hufford, who was a president of one of our schools in the Northeast, while its proponents criticize the present-day church for erecting walls, there is the implication of proponents of this newly discovered grace that there are no walls, joint meetings occur with various denominations offering mutual support and fellowship, obscuring if not ignoring doctrinal differences. It is as if there was no scripture like Romans 16, 17. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine you have learned and avoid them. Beware of grace without obedience. But notice another area that we need to be careful of and we need to be of false teaching in this area. It's women in leadership. In fact, the problem is not principally women of the churches of Christ, in my experience, it is preachers. Preachers who are preaching false doctrine and trying to push women into that role. They want to go along with the cultural trends. Willard Collins was one of the ones who wrote for me in that gospel advocate in 1992 and he said in the 91 lectureship of one of our major universities several husband and wife's teams co-taught mixed male female audiences according to the printed program of that lectureship and it has continued to get worse. In fact, not very long ago, a pulpit preacher in a large church in Texas said, the church of the Lord will not survive the next few years unless we allow women to exercise their ministerial gifts. And he said that in a lecture to youth ministers, by the way. In fact, I add that a professor of one of our universities has published two great big volumes that have half the pages, our footnotes. Looks very scholarly. Essays on women in in the early church. And his position is that really in 1 Timothy 2.12, he has a particular professor write that chapter. And 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul said, I do not allow women to teach and exercise authority over a man. He says all that really means is he's just prohibiting them doing domineering teaching. It's not all teaching over a man. It's just denomineering teaching. Teaching done in the wrong way. But even the Protestant Thomas Edgar has replied to that. He says any negative meaning for the practices prohibited in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12 is highly improbable in the context. The passage concerns the relationship between men and women, not some practice which is wrong in itself. Domineering teaching is always wrong for anybody, man or woman. In fact, he says it implies it is acceptable for men, therefore it is not some practice such as domineering teaching, which is wrong for both men and women. And by the way, I would add, Paul is not talking about uh, teaching and exercising authority of the woman, which would be domineering her faults and content. Rather, he's talking about any public activity of hers, which is over the man. That's clear in the context. And it seems to me that it's also clear that any person that affirms otherwise His affirmation comes out of his own personal agenda. We must beware of women being thrust into leadership. In the next place, we need to beware of denominational Christianity. I have a great deal of respect for Brother Cecil May. And he wrote one of those articles for me in the May issue 1992 of the Gospel Advocate. And in fact, he talked about several different things that were happening in our brotherhood. And one of the things that uh, he noted was this. A lady came to one of our gospel preachers in the Nashville area, and she was very pious, evidently. And she said, do you think I'm a Christian? She had been baptized as a baby had never been baptized scripturally at all. And he said, oh, yes, no doubt about it. You are a Christian. That same brother in the Nashville area wrote later than that, we need to look at the potential value of a variety of denominations. The same brother keynoted a Nashville assembly with seven different denominations represented and a brass band of one of the Protestant groups playing when he was there. Brother Cecil May said this about the position of the progressives among us on this matter, the matter of denominational Christianity. We hear ourselves condemned for writing people off because they do not go to the church just like ours. We are rebuked for making any doctrine other than the person of Christ. Just the person of Christ is the fellowship idea among many of them. We are rebuked for making any doctrine other than the person of Christ a matter of fellowship. A conference paper by a college professor who is a a Christian clearly and openly maintains that belief in Christ is the sole criterion for salvation, fellowship, and church membership. End of that quote. But then Brother May goes ahead to give a very good refutation. Quote, we must wonder if what Christ has said about baptism and worship simply does not count. Unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3 and verse 5. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4 verse 24. Indeed, what Christ says does count. It must count for us if we're faithful to him. He's the head of the church unless somebody has dethroned him. I would add that Christ's apostle Peter said the opposite of what our change agents say today. Keep in mind what that Nashville brother said to the lady who had been sprinkled as a baby. He said, because she was so pious, yes, you certainly are a Christian. And he was saying you're a Christian without biblical baptism. But do you remember that an apostle ran into a fellow that was pretty pious too? His name was Cornelius. Remember that in Acts the 10th chapter? And after he had perceived that he was very corneal, he was very spiritual, he gave alms and he prayed to the God of heaven. And he didn't say, no, you don't have to be baptized. You're obviously already a Christian. Acts 10 and verse 48, he ordered them to be baptized. And he undoubtedly told them to be baptized for the remission of their sins. That's what Peter always taught if you want to check it. Look at Acts 2 and verse 38. Further, the inspired Paul said to those who were dividing up into competing groups at Corinth, you're not supposed to divide up. He said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 and following, now I exhort you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Does it sound like Paul believes in the, the very great potential of many different denominations? That's not what he teaches. Indeed, we must beware of denominational Christianity for it distorts true Christianity. These are some, not all, of the teachings that we must must resist in order to avoid apostasy. In conclusion, I do believe that many of our brethren still believe in biblical authority, but we need to wake up and be alert, be on guard, be reading and studying, I'm convinced, it's like the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 6 and verse 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. I'm convinced most of our brethren want to do what's right. I don't think we'll lose 85% of the brotherhood this time. My judgment would be, though, we're going to lose 50 to 60% of it in the travels I've done. But sometimes we are silent when we should speak up. It's just easier to pass over it and not have flack and not have disagreement, particularly when maybe they're family members and they're attending a liberal church. But elders and deacons and preachers and Bible class teachers and colleges and preaching school professors need to speak up. And we need to be careful that we don't send our students to schools that will teach them false doctrine. We need to speak up and demand faithfulness. Because if we are like those in the Pergamum apostasy and we just kind of say stay silent and let it happen, then God will have something against us, Revelation 2 and verse 14. We will need to repent of our sins. We do need to repent if we've been silent, Revelation 2 and verse 5. Otherwise, God will remove our candlestick or lampstand, chapter 2 and verse 5, from his list of approved churches. Wouldn't that be tragic for our salvation and all of the others who follow us into that apostasy because we just drift along with the flow? As we close this hour, will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we pray that you'll give us wisdom and give us courage, give us love as we oppose that which is false, Help us not to be unkind, but help us to be firm and help us to make sure that our lives are counting in congregations that will still be amongst those who are on your approved list. We pray it in the name of Jesus, and amen.